Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, an evening where I engage your questions. As I respond to your very specific question, that really is only the beginning of a conversation. And while we don't have those conversations on air per se, um, I have established many beautiful friendships and, and relationships that have come out from me answering your questions because in the end, you want to know more. So often, that conversation, that friendship, that relationship goes uh, much, much deeper than just a simple question about the Christian and Catholic life. So I am very grateful for that. You know, when I was driving over here this evening, I was thinking to myself, so often I say that we need to respond to a question with a question, and yet here we are responding to a question with a very specific answer, and our Lord did have answers as well, <laughs> right? So it is good that I can set aside time to answer your very specific questions. But again, like I just said, I can only do so much because in the end, as I respond to your specific question, now I know you have another question. And hopefully by the grace of God, my answer to your question opens up a new door for you so we can have the additional conversations we need to have and like I've said, build up a very real friendship and relationship. So anyhow, I mention that because it is important to have answers, right? It's, it's one thing to respond to a question with a question intentionally so as to get someone to think about what they are actually asking, right? But it's something else to respond to a question with a question because you don't have an answer. Okay. As it relates to this evening and the question that I want to take up this evening, well, I could say the question I want to take up is probably a question that I've been getting on and off my whole life, <laughs> quite honestly. Why does the Bible contradict itself? This is a question I haven't taken up yet, and so certainly it would be good to do so. And I am going to take up the question of contradiction, or at least the perceived contradiction, right, with Trent Horn. I have pulled from him before. He has an excellent work titled Hard Sayings, A Catholic Approach to Answering Bible's Difficulties. Um, and in many ways, <laughs> this was really a, a Christian approach to answering Bible's difficulties, because in the end, what the Catholic Church is doing is interpreting sacred scripture as it is for what it says. And so uh, that's what we are about. And hopefully by the end of this evening's program, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. So what is the question, and what is the critique? The question is this, how is it that you can believe in a God that where when you read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, there are all sorts of contradictions in it? Now, the first thing to be said is to understand that we can't even begin to understand the Bible if we do not read it in context, right? I mean, let me ask you this. When you read do you start in chapter, say, 26? Of course you don't. You start where? 
with chapter 1. Why do you start with chapter 1? Because if you're going to understand chapter 26, you have to first understand the first 25 chapters, right? You have to read chapter 26 in the stream of thought of the author. Or better said, you have to read chapter 26 within its appropriate context. So you read it in context. And this is what we do with the Bible. It was the Protestant scholar Carson who once said a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Huh? <laughs> right? Here, of course, Carson was referring to the practice of isolating Bible verses from their original context in order to what? But use them to support a doctrine that the verses don't actually support. As Trent Horn notes, it's just not Christians who are guilty of taking Bible verses out of context. Atheists and other critics of the Bible often do this in order to produce contradictions. In point of fact, the questions that I often receive aren't specific to how Catholics supposedly misinterpret sacred scripture. Certainly that's there. But a lot of non-Christians who are very accusatory towards the Bible and what they've heard and, and how we supposedly miss some huge contradictions. But again, to get at this question, we must first understand the importance of context. And maybe we can draw this out by way of analogy and example. You know, I have a, a Carmelite cloistered nun. So I have a sister who's a sister, right? <laughs> I have a biological sister who is a religious sister. She has taken vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. She has devoted her life to prayer and work in a very profound way. And I bring her up because she writes me a lot of letters, very inspirational letters that I have kept. I have kept every letter that my sister has written me, and there are a couple hundred. And let me tell you something, my friends. Although you don't know her, if you read those letters, you would be moved by them. Now, if I took all these letters and put them in a treasure chest and buried them away, and someone found this treasure chest 500 years from now, and read those letters, would they be inspired? Yeah, sure. But would they understand the fullness of the letters for all that is in them if they did not understand the world that we live in in the year 2017? I would argue no. Why? Well, because in my sister's letters, she often talks about the situation that we find ourselves in today, politically, socially, economically, spiritually, within the church, outside the church, you can't begin to appreciate what she's saying without an understanding of what is going on in the United States of America in 2017. You just couldn't. Would you, could you be inspired? Listen to me. I sound like Dr. Seuss in here. <laughs> would you, could you? I digress. I mean, would you, could you be inspired? Sure. Yeah. But my friends, please understand that you cannot fully appreciate what my biological and religious sister had to say without an understanding of 2017. We can draw this out further with another analogy. What if you are a, an artist and you have been assigned with sculpting saints for a very specific church, say here in the Sacramento Diocese, say it's St. John the Baptist Catholic Church, and you've been asked to sculpt a statue of St. John the Baptist, a statue of St. Joseph, because there's 
a great devotion of St. Joseph here, and maybe one of Our Lady of Fatima, right? We are in this great year celebrating her centenary. Now, what if you sculpted these pieces of St. John the Baptist, St. Joseph, and Our Lady of Fatima, and sent them to the wrong church, right? <laughs> what would be missing? Well, it's context, right? Okay, maybe you are a zoologist, and you've been tasked to take care of apes, and they get sick. Are you going to be able to understand why and maybe how they got sick without an understanding of their original habitat? What would you want to do? You would want to find out where these apes came from, what they were eating, how they were behaving. You would want to get to know the original habitat of the apes you were taking care of. Essentially, my friends, you would need to know the context from which these apes came from. And so in that sense, we could say, when we read the Bible in context, we are made to read, my friends, the Bible in its original habitat. Okay, so that might be an image for you to play around with. Now, I want to go through some of these questions that Trent Horn takes up and just reflect with them. Certainly, some of these questions have been raised to me over the years. Uh, this first one, for sure, <laughs> is it wrong to drink alcohol? The question is posed, why? Because in John chapter 2, verses 3 to 10, and 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, promote what? Drinking wine. But Numbers chapter 6, verse 3, and Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, condemn drinking al alcohol. Why does the Bible contradict itself? Fair enough question, right? Well, we have to pay close attention to what the text is saying, right? Because Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, only condemns being led astray by wine and beer, not drinking alcohol in general. Likewise, the prohibition in Numbers chapter 6, verse 3, only applied to the Israelites who had taken a Nazarite vow not all people or even all Israelites had taken. So once again, there you have an important piece of context. In this case, the vows that the Nazarites would have taken. And what's more, since our Lord's first miracle involved turning water into wine and the catechism only warns of abusing alcohol, it follows that essentially the responsible drinking of alcohol is not a sin. In point of fact, if you really want to go into sacred scripture, the drinking of wine was very symbolic of messianic joy. Why? Because you were drinking from the fruit of the grape, right? And the grape was seen to be life-giving. This is not a case where the Bible is contradicting itself, inasmuch as it is a case of understanding the deeper truths of just not sacred scripture, but once again, the lived realities of the time from which sacred scripture was written. All right. How about this question? Should we pray and do good deeds in public? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 and Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 say we should. But Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 6 says we should pray and give alms in secret. Here, paragraphs 1753 and 1969 from the Catechism help us because those paragraphs remind us that what we do is not for our vain glory is not for our ego drama, but for the glory of God. But for the glory of God that is realized when we live in God's drama, the theodrama. What does Matthew 5, verse 16 say? Let your light 
So shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, my friends, the point of our works is to glorify God, not ourselves. There's no contradiction here. Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, prohibits publicly praying and doing good deeds in order to receive praise from other people. Essentially, Jesus is speaking to the tension here that, yes, you are called to give glory to God, but be mindful of your ego. <laughs> Jesus was not condemning prayer or almsgiving done out of a genuine desire to please God. No, even if other people see us pray or perform good deeds, because if our motivation is holy and pure, then God is going to use you as he ought. This question once again brings us back to that all-important principle of what operates your motives. Why do you do what you do? Which once again has us talking about the ego drama versus the theodrama. This has been a huge point of conversation, by the way, for me in a number of different settings. The ego drama and the theodrama. What is the ego drama? The ego drama is the play we write. The ego drama is the play we produce, we direct. And above all else, the play we star in. The theodrama, my friends, is the play that God writes, is the play that God produces, directs, and above all else, the play that God stars in. If we have allowed God into the drama of our lives as it plays out each and every day, be rest assured, my friends, we will be giving glory to God. But we need to be aware. We are human and vested with the flesh. And as such, it is very easy to give into our egos. It is very easy to seek vainglory. You know, my friends, it's interesting. If you are one who is very involved in uh, your local church, be careful because ultimately people will turn to you. And as they turn to you, they will be seeking answers, answers about God. And as they seek answers about God, remember that you are an earthen vessel. Do not slip into the vainglory, lest that perceived contradiction may be given fuel as people perceive someone pursuing vainglory. So, yeah, no contradiction here. This is about sharing in God's very life and love and, and being an earthen vessel. And, you know, the, the call we have to pray and give alms in secret, yes, we are called to do so. We are called to pray in secret. We are called to give alms in secret, right, for sure. But as we espouse to be the light in the darkness, let it be known that our light can only shine because we live in the light of Christ. We live in the presence of Christ. And when, and when we behold this presence, this light, people will know that it doesn't belong to us, but belongs to Christ. Okay, how about this question? Is God peaceful or warlike? Have you heard that question before? <laughs> Exodus chapter 15 verse 3 says the Lord is a man of war. But Romans chapter 15, verse 33 says, the Lord is the God of peace. Now, there seems to be an obvious contradiction, huh? But wait a second. What did I say from the outset? Read it in context. 
Exodus 15, my friends, is a poetic expression of Israel's gratitude for God for rescuing them from the Egyptians. It does not contradict Paul's supplication for the God of peace to be with the church of Rome. No, that's because violence, even war, can be necessary to secure peace in a fallen world. Here, Trent Horn reflects with an example. When he was accused of disturbing the peace with his boycotts, Martin Luther King said, true peace is not merely the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. Let me say that again. This is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. True peace is not merely the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. My friends, this is why the catechism does not absolutely forbid war and list the requirements that must be met for a conflict to be considered a just war. There is no contradiction in describing God having both a desire for peace as well as a special care for those who secure justice through armed conflict. We have to understand that in the end, peace is just not about the absence of warfare, but in the light of what Dr. Martin Luther King was talking about, spiritual welfare, because you can only have spiritual welfare with what? Justice. The ought, right, in the spiritual life. There is an ought because there is an is. And by that I mean there is an ought because there is an absolute truth. And that is, of course, is the person of Jesus Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not a way, a truth, and a life, but the way, the truth, and the life. That whole Greek is in the imperative, absolute sense. He is the highest good, the sum total of good. So, in sacred scripture, he reveals to us what this ought looks like. And, oh, by the way, it doesn't contradict itself. Once we understand that peace first is about spiritual welfare and not just about the absence of warfare, we can begin to unlock this perceived contradiction. Peace is just not a tree for negotiation. Yes, it helps, sure. God doesn't desire, per se, war. But again, remember, my friends, he is never going to impose himself. Why? Because God is the ultimate gentleman. And he can't because he is love. And if love is going to be love, it always must be free. What is inherent in love is the gift of free choice. Why? Because how can you possibly love if it is not free? I mean, imagine if someone came to you and said, love me. If you love that person because they said, love me, is that true love? No, because it's not free, which leads us ultimately to the point of why there is evil. Man has free choice and he chooses between good and evil. And when man chooses evil, it leads to a downward spiral. And ultimately, as God will not impose himself upon freedom, he at times will allow war. Why? Well, because of what Dr. Martin Luther King said there, and also just a larger point that in the end, peace is about spiritual welfare, being in right relationship with God, we don't sit there preaching, we need to go to war, we need to go to war, we need to go to war, but sometimes it is necessary. And the Christian tradition has always espoused to such. All right, how about this question? 
Should we answer a fool according to his folly? Proverbs chapter 26, verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. But the next verse, chapter 26, verse 5 says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, at this point, certainly, the critic should take a step back from his diligent hunt for contradictions and ask himself. (laughs) And again, asking questions to get an answer to your question is very helpful. Was the author of Proverbs really so obtuse that he wrote two contradictory verses right next to each other? Or, or was the author using this apparent contradiction in order to teach us a lesson? My friends, part of reading sacred scripture in context is appreciating literary genre, how the authors write, huh? It's just not rote history per se, but sometimes poetry, sometimes apocalyptic writing, whatever it may be to, to get across this point. In this case, of course, with Proverbs, you're dealing with wisdom literature, right? So as you ask these questions, then we might, then we might come to realize that in this case, specifically, if you do not answer a fool, then he will think he is smarter than he actually is and plunge deeper into his harmful ignorance. But if you do answer a fool, then you risk looking like a fool yourself as you argue with him over his inane beliefs. The author of Proverbs, my friends, probably wanted his readers to avoid this dilemma by either avoiding fools in general or by using wisdom to discern when it is worthwhile to engage a fool in conversation. And if you had asked me, my friends, I think this verse is more about using wisdom to discern what is worthwhile to engage. Uh, You've heard me talk about it before. So often I get questions just to get my pilot light going, (laughs) right? They have no real interest in wanting to hear the answer to their question. They just want to get me going. So I have to discern in that very specific encounter, what God is calling me to. And again, this is why I often respond to a question with a question, because it kind of cuts to the chase. Where is he or she at and, and why they are asking me the question? So we discern. And, and mindful that when you talk about discernment, you are talking about that capacity to separate and distinguish whether or not to engage or disengage. Just because someone asks you a question, it doesn't always mean that you need to answer them right there and then. Quite honestly, sometimes it can be a trap. You get caught up in this point-counterpoint, sometimes punch-counterpunch match of wits. So be present to that, because I do think that in the end, this passage from Proverbs is about this call to discern. Okay, so... We've looked at about four verses as it relates to the need to read a biblical verse in context so as to appreciate that where there might be a perceived contradiction in the end, there really isn't a contradiction there. I believe it is God's doing that there are some verses out there that at first glance don't make a lot of sense. Why? Why doesn't God just say, here's the truth? Why doesn't God just make it obvious? Well, my friends, Nothing in life is easy. And in point of fact, it is in the struggle that we begin to appreciate the truth for what it is. Just like someone who who loves to go 
mountain climbing or rock climbing so as to ascend to the top and to see what he has yet to see, so we too in the spiritual life are called to struggle with spiritual matters that we might now see what we have yet to see. Isn't that what it's about? Going deeper and deeper and deeper. Isn't that what moves us? Does not all mystery keep us going? So many of us enjoy a clever analyzing of clues so as to figure things out or maybe a logical puzzle to piece together. Or maybe you are one who likes a good conspiracy movie, a good mystery movie. Why? Because in the end, my friends, we are wired by God. And as such, we are wired for mystery because God is mystery. Certainly, St. Paul makes that point time and time and time again. And so we plumb into the depths, dive into the depths of God's mystery so as to discover what we have yet to discover in our spiritual journey, that we might come to know him for who he is. Yes, sacred scripture is divine revelation, and we can come to know him because he has revealed himself. But understand, sacred scripture is also mysterious. And in his mystery, he continues to beckon us to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And don't stop because there is a perceived contradiction. No, let that contradiction be an invitation to go deeper. That in faith, we might come to understand that behind a perceived contradiction, there is a deeper truth for us, a truth that will lead us into the very heart of God. Amen. Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.